Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Fistle Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like... My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together, we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds, and Donald Trump found a way to make the Monterey Park shooting all about him. We have a thrilling show today. We talked to Andrew Weissman, former DOJ prosecutor and author of Where the Law Ends, about the latest in Trump's many legal jeopardies. Then we'll talk to Pucks, resident Silicon Valley billionaire expert, Teddy Schleifer, about SBF and the rest of the tech world gone mad. But first, we have Vanity Fair political reporter, Bess Levin. Welcome to Fast Politics, Bess Levin. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Such an honor. We're very excited to have you, fellow Vanity Fair writer. (laughs) First, let's talk about Ivana Trump having left behind $34 million of assets when she died in July. Discuss. That's really surprising. I I don't want to stereotype. I don't, I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but I'm surprised that she had that amount of money when she died. I would have thought that she sort of would have been, you know, I know she had the, the huge townhouse, but I would have thought it would have been kind of like a an E.D. Beale situation where it was just like ruins and there was no money left. Right. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. Well, the, yeah. I will say the townhouse is twenty six point five million. So that and that, would, that's part of the 34. Yes, that's okay. like a large part of it. Right. So that's still she still had over 10 million or 
if I'm doing my math right in the bank, that's maybe she had great um, financial advisors. Yeah. I mean, she certainly didn't invest with her ex, right? Right. Exactly. She didn't, she didn't put some money in truth social or Trump, exactly. Trump stakes, Trump stakes, Trump water. Um, here we are, we are in this weird 118th Congress, Bess. Very weird. What do you think? I mean, it seems like Trump is gone, or at least he's in his Elba. What do you think about? I mean, it does. It certainly feels like the dysfunction is not going away anytime soon. Oh, no. It almost seems like the dysfunction is worse than ever. You have the Kevins and the never Kevins. You have. I mean, how amazing was that? 14 losses in a row until yeah. he <laughs> finally <laughs> eked one out. Is he one of these people who is just so detached from reality that he's like, you know, this is just, like, can he look himself in the mirror? Like, can he look at his children when he goes home or is he like ashamed or is it totally fine? I don't know. But so you've got that. You've got Marjorie Taylor Greene running things. And also she thinks she's president, as I'm sure you saw. She said the other day, she's not, si she's not signing any of these bills. <laughs> I love her so much. I mean, I know she's terrible for American democracy, but she's very good for right, American right, comedy. Sure. Right, 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 right. She's fighting in the bathroom with Lauren Boebert. And then Lauren Boebert's new line, which she, <laughs> by the way, has now tweeted. By the way, Lauren Boebert's tweets, both Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene have decided that they are going to have gravitas now. I don't know if you've noticed this. Oh, right. It's amazing. It's amazing. So so Lauren Boebert was like, we are here because she's very psyched. She's on oversight lulls. And so she was like, over. So she has all these oversight tweets now, which I think are incredible. It's amazing. Yeah. And also Margie's also on Homeland Security, which is amazing <laughs> because she said the other day, I don't know if she I don't know if she said it flatly or if it was just the suggestion that Hillary Clinton had JFK Jr. killed because he was her competition for becoming senator. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yes, I, I remember it well. But like, as people know, it's incredible because if these two weren't, you know, in Congress or maybe even if they were like, you can easily see them being the two people at the bar where one of them cuts in line, the other person <laughs> for the bathroom and the other one smashes a beer bottle over the other one's head. And yes, now, now, yeah. And then, and then we've got Mr. Santos. <laughs> yes. All right. So Santos. Dog killing, 9-11, <laughs> Holocaust. Right. I mean, the, the drag thing is the best part about him. He's Jewish-ish. Jewish. He never said he was he never said Jewish. He, was Jewish. He, he put he the was, emphasis on ish, uh, ish. And and you people are disgusting for suggesting right. otherwise. <laughs> I don't know how you live with yourself. <laughs> I mean, yes. And then the tweets now, he's got this real righteous indignation. Oh, God, they're so good. They're so good. I will not be distracted by this. Right. I'm here. I, the people of NASA elected me as the child of Holocaust survivors to serve in Congress. And now that I'm not the child of Holocaust survivors. It's amazing. And like, we haven't even talked about these people make Jim Jordan somehow look, look serious. I don't know. It's but he's not, obviously. Today is punch bowl was all about Jim Jordan and the ways in which he is pushing the levers. I'm sorry, Jim Jordan? <laughs> 
yeah, former wrestling coach Jim Jordan. <laughs> these are the people you want making our laws and doing our doing our thing. It's crazy. No, so yes, I agree with you that the insanity and the dysfunction is seemingly worse than ever. Jim Jordan is going to end up being the head of judiciary, what that will look like. I mean, I assume it's going to be a lot of Hunter Biden, right? Right. And do we think it's going to be much of anything else? I mean, are they the people who will drag? I mean, he's going to yell at Jerry Nadler a lot because Jerry Nadler's the minority member. Who besides Hunter Biden do you think they're going to haul before them for questioning? There's definitely will be impeachments. Right, right. Oh, they're already talking about the homeland guy, Biden. I don't know. I mean, their majority is so slim. They're going to talk about impeachment every single day for the next two years. They're going to probably drop articles. But what do you think of them actually being able to impeach Biden? Like, given how... Kevin McCarthy's bid for the speaker role. Went. Do you think they'll I mean, actually be successful? I can't imagine a world where they are able to actually do anything in this Congress, but I do think there'll be a lot of straw and job. I mean, look, the thing that is imminent is the debt ceiling. Yes. Oh, just the death ceiling. Right. I mean, June is when we run up to this. All right. We already t yesterday was when we ran up to the debt ceiling. But Janet Yellen said she could do some weird yeah. accounting and right. not to worry until June. She's like, she, I got this. It, it's important to note that no other country has this debt ceiling. It's a completely made up fiasco. It has been take it has been weaponized by the by Jim Jordan and his people in the Freedom Caucus. So these are fake problems that uh, Jim Jordan world has decided are going to help them. Right. Oh, and they'll definitely use them for, you know, hostage situations and and tactics for sure, because they don't actually care about the economy. Right. I mean, and they certainly don't care about like spending less. I mean, oh, God, no. <laughs> I mean, that is, I feel like that is like an amazing little bit of sorcery right there. Oh, yeah. No, they don't care at all. If a Republican president is in office, they're like, spend it all, spend it right. all, do all the tax cuts. It doesn't matter. And now they're like, screw you, Joe Biden, you deadbeat. Right. <laughs> piece of shit. I do think it is an incredible bit of sorcery. I want to get back to Santos for a minute because we moved too quickly through this. Yes. He is one of the four votes that McCarthy desperately needs in order to stay speaker. But every day is another embarrassing revelation. So it's incredible. <laughs> the scarf, right? The dog killing, the Holocaust. One of my favorites, the little one, is that he was a volleyball star at Baruch College and like help them. <laughs> Two knee replacements. Two. And help them beat Harvard and Yale, which, oh, it turns out they never played Yale when he claimed to have gone there. Like, it's just it's so amazing. But yeah, the dog stuff is truly truly terrible. If it were me and I were lying about something as ridiculous as what sport I played in college, I don't think I would have picked volleyball. Yeah. I mean, I guess he's tall. So maybe he thought it would be believable. I agree with you that, I don't know, volleyball is kind of, I don't want to offend your volleyball listeners, but 
maybe volleyball seems kind of lame, but maybe he thought maybe he thought it would be believable. He was like, I can't get away with saying football. Does Baruch College have a football team, by the Does way? Does Baruch so maybe College that... even have a volleyball team? <laughs> I'm not sure they do. <laughs> I think I think shockingly they do. And I only say shockingly because like literally he doesn't tell the truth about anything. It is a city college. Apparently what his pattern is, is he steals stories from other people he knew and he stole that from someone he knew. Oh, okay. And just like the scarf, the Burberry scarf that he wore at the the January 5th. And he said he, he lost four employees in the Pulse shooting. Like what? <laughs> and it's not true at all. It's not true at all. Like what? I once had this date with a guy like years ago before I was married. I've been married 10 million years. Yeah. He said he grew up next to Chernobyl. And my husband was like, was like, you know, that's a lie, right? And I was like, no, it's possible. And he was like, no, it's a lie. And like, I always think back on this idea that like, you can't have too many of those things, right? No, like, no. He has all of them. 9-11, the Holocaust, Pulse nightclub shooting. <laughs> it's incredible. It's, ah, oh, it's amazing. He almost makes Trump look like a person who doesn't have trouble telling the truth. Like, almost. Speaking of Voldemort. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this reporting today is like, I want to say, like, this is the worst person you know meme, right? Donald Trump says, and and I mean, again, we never talk about, like, Donald Trump, I don't want to pay him a compliment because obviously I don't want to pay him a compliment, but I do think it's an interesting, he, he does have some smart political instincts. Yes. And you will remember when Roe was overturned, he said, this is going to be real fucking bad for the Republican Party. And he turned out to be right. And so today, the Oracle of Palm Beach, which he is not, <laughs> said that under no circumstances should Republicans vote to cut a single penny from Medicare or Social Security because the dumbest person you know is actually maybe smarter than Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, it's interesting. He does, you know, that's the really annoying thing about him. It's like, sometimes he's kind of funny. Things like that. Right, I know. Well, that's, you know, that's how he won the nomination. It's the whole thing with like, DeSantis is terrible and I think he would be just as bad oh, as yes. Trump. But then people are like, he doesn't have Trump's like, I think the... He's not I charismatic. Think, I think, yeah, I think New York Magazine called it Trump's sinister charisma. Exactly. Like, he doesn't have that. He's just like, ugh, terrible. And that's the problem with Trump. It's like, it would be great if you just weren't present. You were just this, uh, you know, circus sideshow that we could like sometimes right. laugh at without being like, oh, but it's really bad for society and humanity. But yeah, he's smarter than Kevin McCarthy. He's so bad at politicking, it feels like. He's so obvious in everything he does. And I agree, like he he's somehow like not <laughs> this is a crazy sentence, but like not as smart as Trump. What? <laughs> This is in no way an endorsement of anything. I mean, Trump is a real fucking idiot and he's a terrible, terrible human being and a terrible politician. But I'm not sure he would have lost 14 speakership races in a row. I don't think so either. Now, would that be because he would like send out his goons to send a message right. that there would be broken kneecaps? 
<laughs> or or blackmail people or be like, I'm going to write a book right. and I know exactly. a lot of stuff. Like maybe that could be part of it. So we can't just say it wouldn't be through underhanded tactics, but I agree with you. I can't see him losing 14 votes. And we just had a guest on here yesterday who talked about or whenever the last episode of this was where she said that Kevin McCarthy is thought of as a dead man walking at this point. Yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, he's beholden to George Santos. Yes. He needs to keep George Santos happy. How does this play out in your mind? I mean, I don't know. Do you think they're going to fire him at some point? Or do you think they like having him to like push around? He will not resign. right? No, 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 no. Clearly will not resign. Oh, sorry. I thought you meant with McCarthy. Oh, McCarthy. Well, you only need one person. Right. So like. Right. Yeah. Yeah. To bring it to a vote. He gave them that. That was their thing. Right. So Chip Roy, I mean, I think there's a likely scenario where the debt ceiling brinkmanship ultimately pushes a new. I mean, look, the dream, my West Wing brain, <laughs> right? You right. know, the, the sort of terrible, the TV brain says like moderates will come together and save the American credit. But, Ooh. you know, if they do that, they all lose their primaries, the Republicans right. anyway. So that even if they're in a swing district. So, I mean, that is the sort of amazing thing about this situation is that McCarthy has gone along and gone along and gone along. And now he finds himself in a situation where he is in bed with people that you can't, that will, you know, knife him. And, you know, you have all of these candidates who are in these Biden districts, these Republicans who cannot, you know, if they shut down the government, they right. will lose their reelection. But if they make a deal, they will lose their primaries. Right. I don't think anything good can come of this situation. And also, especially for McCarthy, I think yeah. this is a terrible, terrible idea oh, well. on his part to become speaker. Oh, well. Thoughts and prayers. What are you going to do? Right. In terms of Santos playing out, oh, he'll never resign. Never. I think the only way he's out within this term is if like he is arrested. Yeah, and, Brazil like, extradites him. Yes. Right, exactly. But otherwise, I don't think he's going. I mean... I'm sort of like, okay, if he runs for re-election, how does how does he do it again now that the people of Nassau County? So I think he's gonna I think he's gonna ride out these two years and then who knows what his next act is. The thing that is amazing about Santos is the money stuff doesn't make any sense, right? Like he donates more money than he's ever made in his life to his own campaign. Right. That seems suspicious. He has this relationship with a Russian oligarch. All good. That's that's suspicious. <laughs> yeah. So there's a real likely scenario where we see him, you know, there's either a legal situation or, you know, I mean, those guys, I'm not sure you want to do a lot of like money borrowing with Russian oligarchs. No, I don't think so. <laughs> it seems bad. <laughs> it seems like it would be a bad idea. Also, like, can we just talk about, this was just reminding me of the money and the Kevin, the fact that he had a staffer on his campaign who was raising money, calling up <laughs> right, donors and yes. impersonating Kevin McCarthy's <laughs> chief of staff. And they admit that happening. Like, I read something the other day where Kevin McCarthy's office was like, yeah, when it came to our attention, like, we resolved it. Like, what? We resolved it? He was impersonated? <laughs> So supposedly what? 
McCarthy was like, Santos fired the staffer who was involved in that. You're like, yeah, it was the staffer and not Santos. Right, exactly. It was obviously Santos's idea or maybe Santos was the guy doing the impersonating. Right, or whatever his name it's is. incredible. His name may not even be Santos. And this is just like one of his lies. Imagine if we heard that just, you know, pick any random elected official, Democrat or Republican. Like, what if we heard that Katie Porter's communications person was impersonating Nancy Pelosi? Like, that would be a huge friggin' deal. This is like 10th on his list of bullshit, but it's incredible. Right. Well, Democrats, it's never a crime when when Republicans do it. Right. Obviously, obviously. Thank you so much, Bess. I hope you'll come back. Oh, of course. Please have me. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Andrew Weissman is a former Department of Justice prosecutor and author of Where the Law Ends. Welcome to Fast Politics, Andrew Weissman. So nice to be here, finally. (laughs) I'm delighted. Um, I have so many questions for you. Um, All our listeners know, I mean, you have worked in every part of the legal world. I'm sure there are some parts you haven't, but I wanted to ask you, I mean, the first question I have is, I think we have to talk about the Fannie Willis grand jury. Can you explain to our listeners? Because I think there still needs to be another grand jury. Yeah. So, you know, this is is a bit of an anomaly in Georgia state law. And there's sort of an investigative uh, grand jury, and that's what 
everyone's sort of been following when you've been looking at, you know, will Giuliani testify? Will Lindsey Graham testify, et cetera? And they get to issue a report. And next week, there's a whole contretemps that's scheduled about whether that report will be made public and if so, when. And then there's another grand jury that gets to decide whether to indict or not. Now, the good news for people who want to see things move along quickly is Funny Willis doesn't have to wait to impanel that grand jury and to present evidence, nor does she actually have to represent all of the evidence, meaning she doesn't have to call all those live witnesses back. She can have an agent summarize uh, what was said. She can present the transcripts of what was said to the new grand jury. So all of that could be quite quick if she decides to go forward. Is it true that the reason that this is happening, that this Fannie Willis has this jurisdiction because she is elected and she is, you know, I mean, she's great, but she's a partisan ultimately. The reason she has this jurisdiction is is because of Jenna Alice and Rudy. I think it's because in each of the states where there was an effort to get a slate of fake electors and also pressure put on people to change the election, as we heard on the tape between Trump and Raffensperger, all of those states would have jurisdiction to go forward. It just so happens that this DA has taken the bit and and run with it to mix a lot of metaphors. Um, so she's trying to vindicate the Georgia state process. And of course, you know, the fact that there was that tape makes it that much more compelling because it puts Trump right in the middle of it. The other is everyone focuses on that and the federal case. But long term, like if I were Donald Trump or his defense counsel, it's the Georgia case that I'd worry the most about because he can't be federally pardoned. If, for instance, Trump were to win the presidency or DeSantis or any other Republican, they can't do anything about state charges. Right. The pardon doesn't apply. So, you know, I really think keeping our eye on what happens in Georgia and potentially in the Manhattan DA's office also, since they're now making some noises about resurrecting their investigation. Can we talk about the Manhattan DA because he's been back and forth on that. That's um, Alvin Bragg. Yeah. He had said, and remember, there were the two people who quit, and I'm sure you know these guys, and then they were quite furious, and then there's back and forth, and now he's saying he might do it. What is happening? I'm not sure myself. You know, I know so many of the players there. Yeah, I bet. I can see like Carrie Dunn, who was the general counsel there and litigated twice in the Supreme Court and is by all accounts a straight shooter and a superb lawyer, you know, for him to leave, you know, suggests what the hell's going on. Right. On the other hand, um, the team that just tried Weisselberg and others there, who I also know, are also wonderful, aggressive, appropriately aggressive prosecutors. So, you know, where I, where I hope this comes out is that there was just a disagreement about the necessary quantum of proof. And some people thought that there was more that was needed and others thought there wasn't. You know, that's sort of my best guess because I sort of assume good faith on both sides. And also, it's not like Alvin Bragg had some political motive to delay things. I mean, he was sort of very, you know, politically, it would be you know, it would be good for him to bring the case. And so you kind of want, 
your prosecutors to not be operating that way and to be trying to do an, a fair assessment of the case. On the other hand, you also don't want them to be afraid of bringing a, a righteous case and, and afraid of losing or afraid of the controversy. So I think there's more to more on that. And, and you know, the, the latest on that is Mark Pomerantz, one of the lawyers who quit, is apparently has written a book and there's a whole back and forth because he apparently did not submit it for what's called pre-publication review, which right. I wrote a book that you're supposed to do that. <laughs> you know, I did it. It's not a fun experience, but right. you agreed to do that up front. So he apparently didn't do that. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. Because I know when Pete Strzok had to do it, I mean, it was a real pain for him, but um, they can sue you if you don't do that. Yeah, they can sue for all sorts of things that the least is that they can take all of your proceeds and profits. And the worst is if you aren't careful and you have revealed grand jury information, that actually is a crime. Now, in Mark's case, it's hard to imagine somebody with his pedigree and experience that he would do that, right? I mean, he's he's so experienced that you would assume he, he sanitized it of that information. Right. But it's a ballsy move, right? It's definitely a ballsy move. I mean, my reaction to it was, you know, even John Bolton, <laughs> right. he went through pre-publication <laughs> review and, you know, and he's not exactly your model, but, you know, <laughs> even he did it. It's so interesting. I mean, it's just such a sort of like, we really do find ourselves in this strange situation. So, Trump has all of these legal cases against him. The documents case was until there were these Biden Center documents found, the documents case was the sort of most open and shut sort of slam dunk case against Trump. Now, did the Biden documents, which are obviously not the same thing, even a little, but do they hurt the Trump case? And, you know, I'm going to give you a legal answer that you'll hate, which is yes and no. Right. <laughs> you know? well, I mean, that's like that's why people hate lawyers. <laughs> so the no is, you know, at the department, what you do is you're trained to to look at the facts in the law and to differentiate cases. And as you said, Molly, it's like the cases at least what we know about them couldn't be more different. One has, you know, criminal intent and obstruction of justice. And by all accounts, the Biden one does not. There's no question that he turned the documents over as soon as he was aware of them, so far as we know at this point. And there's no evidence of obstruction of justice. So legally, there should be a recommendation from Jack Smith to go forward on his case. And you would expect for Rob Hur, the special counsel uh, in the Biden case to recommend against it. But that being said, it is so important that if a former president is going to be charged for the first time in our history, right. that there be public acceptance and understanding as to why that is appropriate and why he is being treated just like anyone else. Right, um, right. And if you look at Department of Justice precedent, in other words, the other cases they brought, there's no question, and I unfortunately am a nerd and I've done a huge deep dive in that, there's no question that Donald Trump um, should be charged if he's going to be treated the same as other people because people who did far less than than he right. have been charged. But I think it is going to hurt the sort of public acceptance aspect. And that is such a huge part of bringing the case um, but I do think that's where people like us are going to be really important to, to for the department and for 
uh, commentators to really talk about why there is a difference and why they are appropriately treated differently if we end up in that position. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. You know, Trump has been Teflon for so long. The thing that I was talking to Hugo Lowell about before, just to name drop, (laughs) before we did this interview, was this idea that Trump had actually mixed documents. And so he had documents that were um, sort of high level classified documents mixed with more recent documents and that that might show intent. Yeah, absolutely. So the fact that he would have documents mixed with personal documents, but also ones that are recent, would suggest that he actually knew of the documents and was aware of them at the time. I mean, because, you know, a normal defense for sort of senior people, whether you're talking about a corporation, uh, you know, I prosecuted the Enron executives, or you're talking about a gang or political leaders in all of those situations, the normal defense is, I didn't really know what the low level people were doing. It's like, you know, they were just sort of on their own. I mean, Biden is clearly saying that and it, it, it could very well be true. So, but Trump, the evidence on that is he's been, you know, he hasn't helped himself by um, saying, you know, these were mine. And he was the one who ordered you know, and kept very close hold on sort of how they would be taken from the White House and what where they were going and where they were kept at Mar-a-Lago. So I think that kind of defense is going to be really hard for him. Um, I was recently asked, can you think of a defense in that case? And the answer is no. <laughs> you know, and, and we really tried. I mean, I was part of this group where we we did a sample prosecution memo. And it was this group at NYU. And, and we really tried to flesh out any and all plausible defenses. And, you know, we did, but none of them worked because there was so much counter evidence, some of which com- coming directly from Donald Trump's mouth. Right. Um, or his you know, tweets. which is. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, as a defense lawyer, that's always the worst possible thing. (laughs) Um, You know, you're basically, you know, you want client control to basically shut up. It's super interesting, especially when we have these documents. The thing I was struck by was that the Trump people were all like immediately like in my mind, I thought, wow, they put a special prosecutor on the Biden documents much more quickly than they put the special prosecutor on the Trump documents. That is pretty shocking. But the Trump people immediately started making the case that the special prosecutor that Biden had gotten was actually a deep state plant because he had worked at the FBI for the FBI, the head of the FBI who was appointed by Trump. I mean, I worked at the FBI. I was the general counsel there. That's not exactly a deep state institution. (laughs) I mean, the idea that this is somehow a democratic stronghold is sort of is, you know, this is the world we live in where it's all sort of Orwellian doublespeak. Um, Rob Herr is a hardcore Republican. I mean, he is a Republican. (laughs) He was appointed by Trump to be a U.S. attorney. He worked for Rod Rosenstein. You know, one of the controversial things he did when he worked for Rod Rosenstein is he gave a press conference announcing a criminal case. And where did he do the press conference from? The White House, <laughs> which, by the way, talk about like you know, blurring the line between the what's supposed to be the independent Department of Justice and the White House. So the idea that they're going to try and paint him as a deep state Democrat is this is just you know, black is white territory. My sense is they're doing this because they know that this document case against Biden is not the same as the document case against Trump. Yeah, unless something breaks, you know, based on all the facts that we have so far, this is one where 
I would expect a thorough, fast investigation that leads to a recommendation of a declination. I have a question about this Trump's Chinese bank account. I feel like we had that news and it just like disappeared. Obviously, a president is not supposed to have a bank account in China. I'm not even sure that any of us are supposed to have one in China for American citizens. I mean, I guess it's not illegal technically, but I mean, there's no legal consequences for any of this kind of stuff. It's just sketchy. It is sketchy and of concern because you want to know why it's there and what its purpose was and who is putting money into it for what ends. I mean, so there, there are all sorts of concerns about from a national security perspective as well as just a sort of foreign influence perspective. But there is a way in which, a sort of very obvious way in which it could be illegal, and I stress could. Um, And that's because, for instance, in the Paul Manafort case, one of the things he did is he had all of these foreign bank accounts on his United States tax returns. A standard question that's in all of our um, federal tax returns is a question about whether you have any foreign accounts. He checked off repeatedly for years, no. He told his tax advisors the answer was no. And instead, he got all of this income that she didn't report from Ukraine and other places. And he used it to pay for things like his very fancy gardener in the Hamptons and his maid service and his ostrich jacket and all sorts of other things. And he just paid from his accounts in Cyprus. It's tax fraud. Yeah, exactly. So he, one of the charges he faced was simply lying to the IRS about his foreign account. I know obviously we had to show that he, you know, that he personally knew he had that account and that he knew that he had um, told the IRS that he didn't have those accounts, but that wasn't very hard to show. So again, one of the, I think, sort of disappointing things uh, in terms of the Department of Justice is there has been apparently a tax audit for now years and years and years uh, by the IRS about Trump's taxes. And then it doesn't seem like that's going anywhere. While the state has looked at that and prosecuted successfully his companies, it doesn't appear that there's really an active federal investigation into that. And then recently we've heard the tax authorities say, well, you know, it was just too hard, which <laughs> like it was too complex. And that I have right. to say, as, as a former you know, federal prosecutor, it's like, are you joking? <laughs> I mean, that's your job. I mean, the idea it's like, listen, you know, your crime was sophisticated. So that's kind of above our pay grade is not a great answer in terms of <laughs> your obligations to the American public. <laughs> Trump got a lot of like legal um, wrist taps recently, right? Like that judge who just said that his lawyer, who was the conservative television host. Can you talk about that? Because that's pretty interesting. That's Haba, right? Her name is Haba. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, so there was a, a fine of almost a million dollars sanctioning uh, the lawyers for bringing a frivolous case. And I actually think it's a good indication that the, the lower courts um, have really, by and large, uh, maybe leaving Judge Cannon aside, have done a really good job of applying the rule of law, whether it's a judge appointed by Donald Trump or by a Democrat, and really saying, you know what, we are a separate institution and we're not going to green light your fraud claims. We're going to hold you to account and refer you to bar associations if you make frivolous fine filings. And this is a really I think an important fine to say, you know, you can't this, whatever you're doing in the public sphere and like tweeting and disseminating all sorts of 
garbage to the public. When you do it in a court of law, there are sanctions for that. And so I really applaud the judges who are are taking that seriously. So I want to ask you about this for a minute, because then the next day, Trump uh, withdrew his lawsuit against the New York State AG, Letitia James. Is that do you think that's related? Yeah. Also, for Donald Trump to bring any civil lawsuit, it's so ridiculous because he would then be subjecting himself to being deposed. That's not a good look. I mean, we just saw the deposition transcript in the Gene Carroll case. And, you know, he looks ridiculous. I remember when he threatened to sue the New York Times and the New York Times general counsel wrote a really funny letter that he made public that basically said, bring it on. (laughs) You you want to sue us? Great. Looking forward to it. Andrew, this was so interesting. I hope you will come back because you are way above our pay grade here. So we really appreciate it. (laughs) Don't be silly. I'd love to. I'd love to. I know you, our dear listeners, are very busy and you don't have time to sort through the hundreds of pieces of punditry each week. This is why every week I put together a newsletter of my five favorite articles on politics. If you enjoy the podcast, you will love having this in your inbox every Friday. So sign up at fastpoliticspod.com and click the tab to join our mailing list. That's fastpoliticspod.com. Teddy Schleifer is a tech reporter at Puck News. Welcome to Fast Politics, Teddy. Thanks for having me. Very excited to have you. All right. So first we have to talk about Sam Bankman Freed and his jailhouse, except he wasn't in his jailhouse. He was in his parents' house, his parents' house interview. He just decided to have you over. Discuss. A little, a little tea and crumpets on a, on a Friday night in, in Palo Alto. I mean, he's not going anywhere, right? Right. The reason why I think he wants to talk and wants to talk is the same reason why we see him, you know, with a substack. You know, he's, he's tweeting through it. I think he feels like lots of people under, you know, enormous scrutiny do. He feels misunderstood. He feels wrong. He feels mischaracterized by, you know, the evil media. And whether or not he is correct or not is sort of irrelevant to me. It's an opportunity. As a reporter, you know, you you live for that, right? You live for the opportunity to get the access to people when they're like walking the tightrope. And so Sam had me over and we talked for a couple hours about everything from his case to his life under house arrest to, you know, what his family and friends think about him right now. It's surreal, right, to think that one of the greatest alleged fraudsters of our generation is just come on over for tea. Pretty wild stuff. Did you feel when you were doing this interview like you were getting conned? Sometimes I feel like when you're doing an interview with someone, you all of a sudden are like, you know, yeah, sister. Like all of a sudden you start sort of rooting for them. But sometimes you really do get the sense you're getting you're that they're they think they're pulling it over on you. Did you have one or the other on that? Right. Someone's always getting conned. The journalist conning the subject or the subject conning the journalist. Sometimes it's a little bit of both. I don't know if any interaction with the recorder on the table is an authentic one. Like, I think there are some that are more authentic than others. Look, I mean, for him, um, he probably thinks that, you know, he's conning me, right? Because he gets the opportunity to talk about things he wants to on his terms. You know, this is not under oath. There's no real consequences for it. You know, he gets to paint himself uh, as a sympathetic boy. No one wants to be his friend anymore. He's not allowed to leave the house and he has this dog and like, 
you know, he gets to paint a more sympathetic portrait than the SDNY is painting. So is there a con element on me? Like, sure. I think, but I think there's always a con element when it, there's an on-the-record interview. But as a reporter, you know, I might think I'm con of him. Like, I'm getting access to a person who isn't really doing other interviews and is, you know, obviously there's enormous public interest in kind of what his life is like. So con all around, the best kind of con. One of the things I found really interesting about this whole case is that Elon Musk feels that he is getting better treatment then Elon, you know, Elon was like, no one's ever going to investigate him because he's a Democrat. And then like the next day he got extradited. He's sort of a Rorschach. Yeah, a Rorschach. Yes. But also I, I might argue that he is like kind of universally hated, but for different reasons. Right. For conservatives, you know, he's this big lib who got a free pass in the media for too long because he was buddy buddies with everybody and giving everybody money and donating to liberals and saying all the right things about making the world a better place, blah, blah, blah. It's funny because on the left, there are lots of leftists who like saw him as this like crypto stooge who was, you know, bringing the party into unsavory and unsavory industry and his neoliberal agenda, you know, hanging out with Tony Blair and Anthony Scaramucci and spreading gospel capitalism. So like, and to say nothing of the fact that obviously he's now a, you know, albatross of the Democratic Party is, you know, groups have to distance themselves from Sam. Like, look, I mean, it's not like Bernie Madoff had friends by the end of this politically or, you know, Elizabeth Holmes or, or whomever. And everyone hates Sam Bankman-Fried. You know, Elon used to be like a hero of the left until like, what, 2016, 2017, when he's kind of started going on his own. He was tweeting then, but like, you know, the public opinion on Elon has transformed over the last five years. I don't know. He is a chooser on adventure. People are mad at him for any number of things. I mean, he did also give money to Republicans, too, right? Yeah. I've done some reporting on this. And, and the gist of it is Sam did donate some money to Republicans. Could I believe, based on my reporting, that Sam donated like, you know, 10, 20 million bucks to Republican interest groups or to C4s? Like, sure. But the preponderance of Sam's money was still going to Democratic Make no mistake about it. Right. Yeah, I think he was like lots of donors who were in heavily regulated industry. Spread the love around to everybody on the House Financial Services Committee and their politics are just whatever's good for their bottom line. Not unlike, you know, Elon Musk. Is he a Republican? No, but Sam has some Republican connections. And frankly, one of Sam's main deputies was this guy named Ryan Salem, who was a Republican donor who was hanging out with Trump Jr. and his girlfriend was running for Congress as a Republican. So one of the problems for the right as they try to go after Sam is that there's plenty of FTX money on their side of the aisle as well. Some places are paying back the money, right? I, I saw that Semaphore is paying back the money. Yes. So every entity would be quite dumb at this point to not prepare for the possibility that they need to you know, send the money back to somewhere. The challenge of the Molly is like, if you put yourself in a position of some recipient, it's like, wh what do you do, right? I mean, you don't want to give the money back to, you know, this, you know, this alleged criminal to, you know, spend it on his legal defense. Lots of entities do feel pressure to do something ASAP, like some Democratic congressional candidates in like November were like donating money to charity. There's a chance that like FTX creditors might hit those congressional campaigns for money again, in which case you could have to pay twice. So I think the, the most prudent course of action that lots of committees are taking right now, whether they're, if you receive money from Sam through a nonprofit or if you received an investment from Sam, everyone is basically trying to 
put it in some escrow account or some wait and see segregable, you know, uh, money pot to figure it out later. And you can announce that, right? And you feel good about yourself and you resist pressure from the media, resist pressure from employees to, you know, not be laundering Sam's money, but you wait a couple months until it's clear where you're going to send it. So that is where lots of SBF tainted committees and nonprofits are ultimately going to put the money is in like, Hey, I got a million bucks from Sam. I'm going to put it in, you know, this account over here and, you know, whatever the government tells us to do with it, we'll do. But obviously this is a huge problem for anybody who's gotten cash. Like I'm thinking about like Melina politics. I mean, there are, uh, there are super PACs that raise money, right. And spend every dollar, every dime, every penny before the midterms or before the election day. Like there aren't just groups that are like sitting on, you know, 5 million bucks. So suddenly when, you know, house majority pack, for instance, needs to return $5 million from Sam Bankman Freed, like after the election's over, like the group could have no cash. So you have to go out and raise money basically to recoup the money you're spending from Sam Bankman Freed that you're putting in this account. It's a clusterfuck. Can you get me up to speed on what's happening with Elon and Twitter? He seems mad at his advertisers who he desperately needs, but also vacillates between mad and look, they're all coming back. What is happening? So there have been reports that Twitter revenue is down 40%. Elon seems stuck in the middle from this, in this transition from advertising to subscription, right? Where he is obviously bringing the platform into making it less safe for, you know, the proctors and gambles of the world to, you know, flog their toothpaste. But people aren't necessarily paying the $8 a month for subscription. So you're in a situation now where advertisers don't want to be on the platform, at least as much as they did, you know, six months ago, but there's not the subscriber base uh, of people who are loving this thing. So ultimately, like Elon should be very thankful to support the company that has ever put earnings quarterly because the equity value of this thing is dying. I think it's possible that Twitter as a subscription product can work, though there's going to be a lot of pain on the way. And obviously, it'll be like any subscription product will have a smaller audience. But could it retain the same amount of cultural influence by having a third as many people who are all spending much more money on the product than they were before? Maybe. I, I don't think the idea of converting Twitter into a subscription business is is a, is a bad one. What do, what do you think? My sense is I'm, I've been wrong about so much here that I don't even want to touch it. But my feeling is that he just gets bored and decides. I mean, I just wonder how long until he gets bored doing this. When he first took over, everyone was, you know, like all the people on the right were delighted, right? And they were like, he's going to get us what we've always deserved. But ultimately, you know, you can't, this entitlement is unquenchable. So, you know, after a while they were like, why hasn't Elon, you know, delivered me millions of followers and, you know, Ben Shapiro money. I'm not convinced, like, why does he want to do this now? Everyone is mad at him. His like, you know, cat turd, who was his bestie is like torturing him. I mean, like, why doesn't he want to just go back to doing rockets? Sure. So if you look at Elon's own Twitter feed and like who he like replies to, do you ever look at stuff like that? It's a fascinating window into, into just like why he might be doing this, right? He is like 
I, I think you and I are sitting here saying like, wow, this doesn't seem to be going well. But if you put yourself in Elon Musk's shoes, like, you know, he is the hero of kind of the online right right now. And, you know, obviously he thinks the mainstream media is out to get him, as we just talked about. But there's obviously sort of a warped sense of reality that he has about how things are going. Um, and I'm not totally sure that what we think matters. It does seem to me like this just doesn't, I, I guess you think as long as he's having fun, he'll keep doing it. Yes. As long as he's having fun, as long as there's not pressure from his own investors and his own creditors to cut the bullshit out, right? Ultimately, there are smart people who gave him money, who invest in money in this company. And if Elon Musk is having a great time, but this company is is tanking financially, there's got to be some come to Jesus moment eventually. That I think is what matters, not what we think it is, you know, the, the only dose of reality that's coming for Elon Musk is when people at Sequoia Capital or at the banks that loaned him money say to Elon, so how is that turnaround going over there? Right, right, right. I mean, or, you know, he loses control of Tesla. Right. That's the other kind of financial pressure. Teddy, this was so great. Thank you so much for coming on. And now, your moment of fuckery. Molly Jung Fast. Jesse Cannon. So, obviously, the GOP now owns that they gave Marjorie Taylor Greene a seat on the Oversight Committee. And Representative McCall of Texas, he had to defend it on the Sunday shows. And he said, I will tell you, she has matured. I think she realizes she doesn't know everything. And she wants to learn. It became, I think, more of a team player. And you know what she said? Hold my beer. Yeah, Marjorie Taylor Greene spent the day spinning conspiracy theories on the internet. And again, this is something that anti-vaxxers have started doing a lot. And it's just mind-numbingly, amazingly stupid. Diamond and Silk, who are pro-Trump pundits, one of them, Diamond, died. And again, we don't know how she died. There was, I think, an autopsy, but it has not been revealed. But Diamond and Silk were uh, serious anti-vaxxers who believed that lockdowns and masks and vaccines all, you know, were much worse than actually uh, being safe. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, furious, I demand immediate investigation into COVID vaccines and the dramatic increase of people dying suddenly. This can no longer be ignored and not and is not political. Well, first of all, it's absolutely political, right? She's an anti-vaxxer. But second of all, Diamond was a big anti-vaxxer. So does that mean Diamond was secretly vaccinated? I, I, I know. And, and you know what's so weird? The one time they got mad at Trump, the only time they ever crossed him was when he pushed the vaccine. You can be an anti-vaxxer, but you can't then say you were killed by the vaccine. Yeah, well. <laughs> or can you or can you when you haven't matured and the rules don't matter to you uh, that's a simple physics there <laughs> that's it for this episode of fast politics tune in every monday wednesday and friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos if you enjoyed what you've heard please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going and again thanks for listening Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. 
Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.